the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, history isn't over. History isn't even really history. Alternating and direct currents of time. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. What do we have this time, Christopher? This time, we have part one of a two-part roundtable discussion featuring the authors of Ring of Fire short story collection, Ring of Fire 4. Our participants all wrote stories for the book, and they include Eric Flint, David Brin, David Carrico, Charles E. Gannon, and more. And those others are Walter Hunt, Bjorn Hassler, Robert Waters, Walt Boys, and Joy Ward. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky, by John Ringo. Here's the news. We have two trade paperback editions of some great books out this May. First is The Sword of the South by David Weber. This is the continuation of David's Norfressa epic fantasy series and features a new companion for Basil Bannockson. His name is Ken Hoden, and boy, does he have a secret he's keeping, even from himself. Also out is The Warrior's Apprentice, 30th Anniversary Edition, by Lois McMaster-Bujol. This one has an all-new introduction and brings back a classic entry in the legendary and hallowed Vorkosigan series. It's also the first Bane book I ever read. Cool. The Sword of the South by David Weber and The Warrior's Apprentice, 30th Anniversary Edition, are available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part roundtable discussion by the writers collected in short story anthology Ring of Fire 4. Part two of the roundtable will be posted next time on the podcast. want to welcome a host of writers to the podcast. These are the many contributors to the latest story collection set in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire series universe. That book is Ring of Fire 4. Hello, everyone. Hey. Hello. Hi. How you doing? Hello. Hello. There's a bunch. Eric Flint is the creator of the alternate history Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, published in 2000 and continuing through many best-selling books, stories, and collaborations. Eric's writing career began with science fiction first contact novel Mother of Demons. With David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series, and with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Katie Wentworth, Dave Freer, and Reiki Spohr. As he states in the introduction to Ring of Fire 4, the Ring of Fire series has about 2 million 900,000 words in novel form, about 2,200,000 words in anthology form, and in ebooks and anthology uh, books that are ebooks, uh, about 5,673,000 words, which is 21 times longer than The Lord of the Rings and 16 times longer than War and Peace. Also with us is David Brenn. 
In addition to being a friend of Eric's, David Brand is a scientist, speaker, technical consultant, and world-renowned author. His novels have been New York Times bestsellers, winning multiple Hugo Nebula and other awards. At least a dozen have been translated into more than 20 languages. Others of the 1632 Glitterati with us now are Charles E. Gannon, three times Nebula nominee for his Kane Riordan science fiction series, and within the 1632 sphere, he is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1635, The Papal Stakes, and 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Also with us is Walter H. Hunt, who is the author of the Dark Wings Space Adventure series. He is the co-author of 1636, The Cardinal Virtues. David Carrico is with us. He is the co-author of 1636, The Devil's Opera, and the sole author of 1635, Music and Murder. David is now reviving the Zhao Empire science fiction series with Eric with upcoming novel The Span of Empire out in the summer. Virginia DeMars is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1634 The Ram Rebellion and 1635 The Tangled Web, and she is the keeper of the famous 1632 Grid. I'm not doing the Grid anymore. Karen Offord, who also has a story in the collection, has taken over the Grid the big database of all this stuff. Robert Waters is the author of many science fiction short stories. And Walt Boys and Joy Ward are uh, also the author of many science fiction short stories. And Walt and Joy are the editors of Ring of Fire Press. And Walt is the editor of the Grantville Gazette. Also here is Bjorn Hasseler. All, are, all of these people are regular fixtures in the Grantville Gazette and elsewhere in the 1632 universe. So, that's who we got. Eric, um, you started out Ring of Fire 4 with an introduction discussing David Brand's story, which is the opener of the collection. Why did you have trepidations when David told you about the story, and how did it work out? Presumably well, since it opens the, the volume. Yeah, it worked out very well. Um... It's always tricky writing prefaces and introductions to anthologies. Um, and I'm minded of advice that Jim Bank gave me many years ago, that whenever he picks up books, he's just got a preface, he thinks, oh, it's probably good for him to read it. So he immediately puts it back on his shelf, looks for something fun to read. Uh, <laughs> so I try to find something that's interesting, just in its own right, to tell people. And I just thought the story of how David wrote it and my reaction to it make for kind of an interesting and, and entertaining opening to the book. Um, like I said in the introduction, I had no idea David was writing this. I mean, I knew he followed the series, but I had no idea he was thinking of writing a story himself. And uh, for reasons I laid out in the interview, I don't want to repeat them here, but, uh, you know, this can, this can be tricky if you're not following it constantly because uh, it's gotten so complex by now. But he did a wonderful job of um, that's the reason why the story opens the volume. David, uh, Brent, can you tell us about your interest and involvement in Eric's uh, 1632 universe? Um, I know you guys know each other, and you, do you follow the series? Oh, yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, they both those a couple of the most recent ones. Hint, hint. Uh, no, I, I, I love it. Um, what I like best about it is that it takes a completely crazy idea, and Eric knew it was crazy from the start. Um, counterfactual, a parallel universe, um, you know, 
King Arthur's court only, you know, invaded by, you know, six or 8,000 West Virginians. Um, and absolutely does science fiction. And by science fiction, I mean works it out. You work out what are the implications? What's cause and effect? And then when it's done best, uh, science fiction is sort of like thought experiment um, extreme R&D department of humanity. And what, it, what, what, what his authors get to do is, is say, all right, this is a very, very rigorous rule set. I am going oh, to, I am going to use cause and effect and figure out, uh, what would be a really fun story. Well, at the same time, yeah, you get the audience to say, yeah, yeah, I, I can believe that's what would happen. So in any event, um, I, uh, I thought about it. I thought about what about this? What about that? What about, what, what, what could I spend a little bit of time in and meddle as much as I could? <laughs> uh, and make a pest of myself and, and possibly make Eric glad that I was. And what I dealt with without giving too much away was, all right, you have the fire, you have Grantville uh, snatched up from West Virginia in the year 2000 and jumped into the year 1632 and waves and waves of cause and effect repercussions. And I thought, well, what happened to the plug of the Thuringian Forest? Uh, little villages that had been there when Grantville was, was plopped there. And the assumption was that it was a swap, that, that that little patch of forest was plopped into West Virginia in the year 2000, and almost no stories of interest would come out of that. But, but it ain't necessarily so. What if instead it was sort of like an assembly line? What if that, that bit of um, Germany in 1632 was shuttled even farther back in time. And they had experiences very similar to what the Grantvillers had landing in 1632, having to fight to survive, having to find some ways of using their advanced technologies to change the world. And that's all I'll say. Well, I presume that the Title 71 refers to where they were thrown back to. Maybe. Shoot. <laughs> too late to change it. <laughs> well, um, d yeah, we don't want to spoil any of the, the reveals of it, um, but you, you do talk in the story, you deal with the, the sort of cultural relativism uh, the, of status. So, like you say, um, if, you know, they would be quickly defeated in our time, we presume, um, although there's some Paul Anderson stories to the contrary about that. But uh, getting thrown back, they are in a relative, uh, relatively same relationship. Uh, that is, people from the 17th century to, say, the Romans, um, as uh, modern people are to 17th century folks, right? And, and some of the same sort of uh, problems and and uh, would apply there. Yeah, that's the idea, and 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 uh, and of course. I, I, I put myself on the scale a little bit in that the heroes of this story um, happen to be um, people who 
uh, are, are, are kind of with the more egalitarian, more revolutionary side of the Thirty Years' War. Just a little. I mean, there's a baron there and all of that, but they lean enough in that direction for the um, for our readership to be rooting for them, because what will come out of this is an improvement over the situation they, they find themselves plopped into. Well, uh, I would like to mention we're going to have 71 on the website, Bain.com, as part of the May Free Fiction, uh, which will be up on the 15th. So if you, uh, w- you listener, want a teaser to pull you into the rest of the collection, that's one place to, to start. Um, David, do you think you'll write more in Eric's universe? What do you think about, and what do you think about that, Eric? <laughs> oh, I'd be delighted if he chose to. Uh, yeah, there's the, the one thing, of course, is that uh, it, it becomes very clear in the course of this story that I am not claiming that in the context of Eric's universe, that the village of Milda from 1632 <laughs> was cast back in time to the year 71. In fact, the whole story is about what is factual in Eric's universe, and that is that there are science fiction writers and there's a science fiction magazine in Grantville. Yeah. And that science fiction magazine has published the story 71. And a lot of the same things that Eric has done to us, making us addicts to his wonderful story, are starting to happen uh, as repercussions in the world of 1632. So it really is a story about Eric's world. It is really a story set in and about the 1632 universe. Yeah, there's a there's an almost Borges complexity to your to your <laughs> boxes within boxes in that story. Notice, you'll notice my. My fingers were in the air doing quotation marks when I said the word fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's move on to some more of the stories in the volume. Bjorn Hassler, your story is called um, Add, Subtract, Multiply, and Divide, but it isn't about math. It's about the incredibly complex brands of uh, Christianity and belief systems present in this, this uh, Reformation era, post-Reformation continental Europe. Um, can you lay out some of the some of the background that your story takes place in? Yes, yeah, so sixteen thirty two is about a hundred years after the Reformation, and uh, the way we look at it now, it's the end of the Thirty Years' War in sixteen forty eight that sort of wraps up that era for us. But for them, they're they're still kind of in the after effects of the Reformation right then. And the uh, the Western Christian Church has now Lutheran, Calvinist, Arminian, um, Anglican, Anabaptist, and, and Catholic uh, grouping. And I'm tremendously oversimplifying. I apologize for the odd combinations that I have to leave out. But you get a lot of the <laughs> the stranger ones also into the story. Um, and, and some of the upstimers who are now in the story are descendants of these very religions, right, um, that started out in the, in the 17th century. Explain how that, that interplay um, is expressed in the story, I mean, without giving too much away, of course. 
the story centers on uh, First Baptist Church in Grantville, where Al Green is the pastor, and he, he's a familiar character from many of the books. And First Baptist is, uh, it, it represents both the Anabaptist strand and a little bit of the Calvinist and a little bit of the Arminian strands as well. They're not exactly the same as any of the downtime uh, churches, but they're they're kind of familiar to some of them, and they've been attracting a fair number of downtimers just because Grantville's gone from 3,500 uptimers to well over 20,000 residents, and those were the churches that were there at the beginning. What the um? There's a rock and roll cassette that's that's in the story. What was on that cassette? Damn it! I I'm not sure I got it. <laughs> um, it it was a uh, rock and roll version of a Christian creed. Uh, because of the restrictions on using lyrics in stories, I didn't specify exactly which one, but there are several songs out there that fit the bill. Uh, I was kind of thinking it might be a, a, an Elvis. Uh, Gospel song, man. I don't know. I, I had a different one in mind, but I, I do think that there are many that would produce the same effect. Yeah. The one other thing I want to ask you about the story is that Celtic uh, brand. Is it a Celtic pre-Catholicism Christianity that, that comes into play? Yes. Uh, Jay Robinson brought um, several Celtic monks to Grantville way, way back in the very early issues of the Gazette. And then these four monks have just sort of been in limbo in Grantville since then. Uh, so I borrowed one of them to uh, to play off of. Um, he he hears the music and he gets to interact with with some of the uh, with some of the Anabaptists. But the the Celtic Christians do represent a um, a different strand of early Christianity uh, from the British Isles. And eventually, the the British Christians uh, decided to go with Roman Catholicism. Um, you know, long before, uh, uh, literally a millennium before 1632. Yeah, but there were a few holdouts. Were the um, well, I, I better not get. I, this is the kind of stuff that fascinates me. Um, but uh, were they not Trinitarians? No, they were very much Trinitarian. They were? Okay. All right. Um, all right, all right. <laughs> we could talk about weird strains of Christian theology a lot. Um, it's a great story, and it really lays out the um, the, the wonderful um, religious weirdness that would happen if, if such an event happened. Um, Robert Waters, your story in the collection is Fallen Apple. Um, this one's a lot of fun. It starts with a kid giving a history report or writing a history report, right? Yeah, it, it basically, uh, it starts off with um, a character that I've used in the past for Granville Gazette stories, uh, a fellow by the name of, a downtimer by the name of Arnold, a.k.a. Arnie Langenberg. He's a very studious boy, very bright. He loves uptime crime noir novels, Philip Marlowe, you know, uh, Nero Wolf, things like that. He enjoys that, so he's very inquisitive, very interesting. He gets this um, assignment to, uh, you know, science assignment for one of his science classes, and he researches Isaac Newton, and he finds out that, you know, 
his parents or soon to be parents or going to be parents um, are, you know, living in, in England. So he manages to write um, his mother, uh, Isaac's, you know, future mother, uh, a letter and basically photocopies or copies the materials that he finds and says, hey, look, who's who's going to be your son? <laughs> so, you know, she gets this, her family gets this. And so what I wanted to do in the story was sort of kind of, um, I don't know, explore the concept of, you know, how, how would this information of these relatively farm people, farm folk, what would they do if they got this information way ahead of time? Because, you know, Isaac doesn't, uh, Newton doesn't, isn't born until 1642, I think. And uh, how do they react to it? Do they care? Uh, do they care? Do they not care? Uh, how does it happen? And more importantly than that, how how are the people around them uh, going to react to it too once this information is discovered? And and that's what I explore in the story, pretty much. Well, can you tell? I mean, I've I've learned some things about Isaac Newton's uh, parents. I didn't know. Can you tell us a little bit about the historical? Uh, parents of Isaac Newton, what they were up to? <laughs> well, uh, you, you know a lot. I mean, what I put in there is probably much what we know. I mean, th there isn't a whole ton of information about them. But uh, Isaac Isaac Sr. was a farmer. He was, a you know, like a gentry farmer. Uh, and uh, not a bad one. He's a pretty decent farmer. Um, and he's several years older than Hannah was. Hannah Askew, I think it's actually pronounced Askew. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they just were. They were just simple farmers. One of the things I found that was interesting, though, is that Hannah actually was able to read. And one of my research pieces said that, you know, she, she knew how to read. And I thought that was a pretty interesting piece uh, of a little historical bit, especially where they were, who they were, the fact that she was a very young girl who knows how to read. Another thing I thought was interesting, too, when I was doing the research was is that it seems to me that uh, Hannah's brother, William, was a, uh Anglican priest. He was an Anglican rector. And I gathered, my, my assumption was, when I was reading it, was that he, he was the one that was probably uh, instrumental in helping her read and keeping it in. And he's very, in, he's very important in the story, too. And... Uh, Historically, he actually encourages and involves Isaac in school, you know, when he gets old enough to, to go to, like, um, I think it's uh, Oxford or some school, some training school. So he uh, he's very, very instrumental in the school. But generally speaking, they were just farm people. You know, they, they weren't anything special. They weren't anything huge. They were just simple, common folk. And, you know, I just thought it would be interesting to explore this notion that they they learn that, you know, they're going to be parents of one of the greatest scientists. Now, taking that and, and taking that a little further, one of the uh, issues that is discussed in this series is the Ring of Fire changed everything, not just uh, created a new timeline, but it basically, it, it's impossible now for someone named Isaac Newton or the Isaac Newton to be born mm -hmm. in this new timeline. Um, and uh, I think that's a valid argument, uh, but I wanted to also have characters who understand this or at least know about this concept, but maybe they don't believe it. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, and how do they react to it? Well, and it's also how do they react because of uh, the, 
Isaac's dad um, finds out that he dies. Also, that is, yeah, that was another thing that I wanted to do too. Um, it, it strikes it strikes me from my research that he was a pretty sickly man. I mean, he was he was in his thirties, I think, when he died, and uh, I guess that wasn't too young in those days. But nevertheless, I mean, it was kind of surprising. I think he caught something and died, and I think it was pretty obvious that he was a pretty sickly fellow. <clears throat> and to know that he dies before he dies, you know, I mean, uh, it, it it just it just felt like that would motivate him to get his act together yeah. to. Uh, you know, and, and, and fly right. Straighten up and fly right, you yeah. know, and, and do something important in his life. Or at least buy some term life. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's a, it's a great concept story. Um, so David Carrico, um, in Hide the Trouble from Mine Eyes, you deliver another strong story starring that detective partnership that we saw in The Devil's Opera and elsewhere. These are the downtimer, um, Gotthilf Hawk. And uptimer Brian Chesik or uh, Chesky, you better say it. Um, and they work in, in Magdeburg, which is near where Grantville sat down. Um, something really evil has happened in Magdeburg. Uh, tell us a bit about the setup for this story. Pronounce their names correctly for me. Gothel Hawk and Byron Chesky. Uh, this story fits in between the stories that are in 1635, Music and Murder, and the novel 1636, Double Opera. This kind of falls in the, the several months that are in between those two uh, narratives. And what happens is Magdeburg gets its first serial killer its first known serial killer. And the story basically deals with Uphill and Byron having to figure out how to track this killer down. And they have they have to do a lot of the regular police procedural stuff. They'll go out and find informers and question people and uh you know, try to find people that can tell them what's going on and look for insights into what this killer might be looking for. But the nature of who the killer is killing is attracting attention of some of the influential people in Magdeburg, which brings um, the, uh, the mayor uh, uh, into play. Otto Garrick brings him into play and he starts putting political pressure on them to get this wrapped up now because everybody's putting pressure on him. So it, it makes for a, a, a complicated storyline. Uh, and they eventually, uh, they eventually, uh, run him down and it, it is a him. They find out Kind of why he did it, but it's well. One of the nasty things about this serial killer is that he scoops out eyes, which you describe in some detail. <laughs> oh, trust me, I didn't go into near the detail I could have. <laughs> but that uh, that that was the signature mark. That was how that was their first clue 
that they were dealing with a serial killer was when the second one happened and the eyes were gone. And so, needless to say, that becomes a, a uh, significant story element. Uh, David Carico, you mentioned to me that the genesis of the story is an interesting tale that involves Eric. Um, can you recount that? And, and if Eric, you want to jump in, please do. No, Eric can't say anything until I'm done. He has, he can speak in rebuttal. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, the original idea for the story hit me way back. I mean, uh, I was thinking about writing High Trouble from My Nice as far back as 2007. But I didn't try to write the story then because I didn't think I had the chops for writing yet. I needed to, to grow a little more as a writer before I tried to tackle this thing because it, it's a long and complex story, and I wanted to make sure I got it done right. So I didn't really start thinking seriously about write, trying to write it until late 2009, early 2010, which was the time frame when Eric and I were starting to put together what we were going to do to produce 1636 The Devil's Opera. Now, Eric, since we were using my characters for the novel, Eric told me to come up with ideas for the story, and we talked about and figured out which ones we wanted to use. Well, I've got two sets of characters. I've got the music characters, and i got the detective characters. For the music characters, no-brainer, we did an opera. For the detective characters, pretty much no-brainer. I needed some kind of police procedural, probably involving a murder mystery. And then there was actually a third story thread which involved uh, civic corruption that kind of bled over into the other two storylines. I think it was at the very first Superstars of Writing Star, Eric and I had dinner one night, and I pitched the ideas to it. Opera. Uh, the idea behind High Trouble from, uh, from Mine Eyes and the Civic Corruption. He was good with the opera, he was good with the Civic Corruption, but when I, when I pitched him the idea for High Trouble from Mine Eyes, he sat there for a few seconds and he said, no, I don't think that'll work, I think it's too derivative. Which blew me out of the water. I had to go back home and think of something else and, Fortunately, I had just finished a 24,000-word novella that I had planned to give to uh, Grantville Gazette, uh, but I sent it, sent it to Eric and said, how about we use this for the police procedural? He said, fine, and that's how Simon and Hans' story got included in Devil's Opera. They were actually plan B. But I put I put the idea for High Trouble for my eyes back on the shelf because it was too good an idea to throw away. Fast forward three years to 2013, Eric has proposed saying that we do an ebook of the backstories of the characters. I had 200,000 words of music character stories, so I have more than enough for a, an ebook there, but I only had 35,000 words of detective stories. And so I pulled the idea off the shelf. I stole five weeks from writing on. Uh, Span of Empire, and I wrote High Trouble from my eyes. I start putting the files together to send to Bain for them to start prepping an ebook, and I send Eric an email that says, here's what I've done, I'm getting the files ready, and by the way, I wrote this other story to add to the additional uh, uh, detective story. Uh, he sends me a note back and says, let me read that story. 
let me read that new story. And I'm going, great. He's going to read that, and he's going to tell me, I still don't like the idea, you can't do that in 1632. But he's the boss, so I send him the story, and I pray that I'm going to get back a response along the line of, well, I still don't like the idea, but I guess it'll work for the ebook. Instead, what I got was an email that said, great story, I want to buy it for Ring of Fire 4, which totally blew me out of the water again. But when I got that email, I just busted out laughing, because you have to remember, I started reading science fiction in the early 60s when the short story was king, mm-hmm. when there were magazines all over the place publishing stories, and there were frequent new anthologies. And more than once, I read accounts like, well, I wrote that story for Fred Pohl at Galaxy, and he didn't buy it. So I sent it around to everybody else, and none of them bought it. So I let it sit for a little while, and then I sent it back to Fred, and he bought it. You know, I read story, you know, accounts like that more than once, and I always wondered if something like that really happened. And Eric proved to me that it did. Because the story, he, the storyline he rejected, Devil's Opera, he bought for Ring of Fire 4. <laughs> okay. I'm done. <laughs> Eric. <laughs> Do you have a? Do you have anything to add to that? Oh me? Yeah. Uh, I, no, honestly, I, I you know, I, I'm not going to argue with him. Um, <laughs> the thing you got to understand is, um, I've had this same, and it can get embarrassing experience um, editing Jim Bain's Universe, which is <clears throat> honestly, once I buy a story, I tend to completely forget about it. Um, you know, I just do, because uh, there's another story i got to look at. So I kind of vaguely remember this, but it's really very vague. Um, so, I, you know, um, I'm glad it worked out well. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, one of the things that, that happened in between was the fact that uh, David Carrico did develop those writing chops. Um, the Devil's Opera is, is, is way one of my favorite of the uh, 1632 series novels and uh really looking forward to uh span of empire and and such uh, this is this is chuck just so let's oh, okay about 15 minutes let me swing back to you then and uh let me find those questions so i don't forget so your story chuck your story is um has appeared on bain.com free fiction and in, in another form i or maybe it's the same story um that story is Kinderspiel. Uh, we come across a theme that plays through several of the stories in this volume, that is the prevalence of disease and how it affects everyone and the huge role it plays in people's lives um, in this time. Um, so you got the plague. What uh, Can you sort of set that story up? It's a, it's, it's a longer novelette. Um, we have Thomas North, um, his battalion, and Major Quinn. What, where are they doing in Biberock? Swybell. Well, the, um, the, the, the short answer is that Viverock is the optimal place to expand the growing, um, lighter than air, uh, network, if you will. Um, it, for a variety of reasons, uh, it's a real good candidate. It's proximity to some of the major towns in Germany that are sort of the aerodrome, like Nuremberg, and then it's 80 miles from Tour. That's a really important distance because you want to have as short a range as possible 
um, as you're making uh, your way into the Alps. The Alps are particularly unpredictable, and you've got a big, you've got a big altitude change. So it's actually well inside the apparent range envelope, but that's exactly what they want. But they get to Biberach, and they find, as was known, a, um, a, a town which has been almost entirely shared by the uh, human physical ravages of the um, of the Thirty Years' War to that day, but um, but has been hit by uh, slightly the plague, more profoundly diphtheria, and there seems to be a great deal of resistance to this idea in general. But as the story goes on, you discover that uh, there's much more than meets the eye. I mean, the w- one of the fun things about the story, or fun in, in storytelling terms, is the way that disease plays into the politics of the era, because it's just this constant that people have to deal with, and they have all kinds of beliefs about it. Tell us a little bit more about the politics of Bibrock and um, how people are using the plague um, as a political cl- uh, club. Now, you know, I actually, in a way it is, I suppose. Um, it, it, what happens with plague, at least in this story, is that by eliminating uh, certain certain individuals in the in the town, in the nearby abbey, it opens up opportunities. I think another thing that's probably um, also, in, in, if you will, inside about plague is that plague doesn't just, in killing people, what it also it, it does is it, what it, I would say it kills, if you will, um, pathways of communication. Um, so, you know, it's that sort of situation where who's in charge. I used to know who was in charge here, and I used to be able to get reliable sort of, you know, if you will, credentials if somebody came into town. But when you combine plague and war, You've got you've got a tremendous amount of chaos and uncertainty, and and whatever the old standards were that were somewhat reassuring that you weren't being hoodwinked or somebody wasn't coming in as a pretender, is a largely compromised. So one of the things, and and it's difficult to talk too much about this, the role of this in the story, except to say that it plays a very large role. All of these factors together, that play is a time, just like war, for opportunity. Yeah, that certainly is the case in Bibrox. That was part one of a two-part roundtable discussion of Ring of Fire short story anthology Ring of Fire 4. We'll have part two and the conclusion of the interview next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. The passenger cabin areas didn't really involve clearing. It just involved opening the cabin door and seeing if the people inside were dead or alive. I can kill zombies all day long, Faith finally said, shaking her head at the door. And I'm fine with this, 
But Trixie cannot walk into one more cabin and find a family dead of starvation. Tell Trixie that's fine, Hooch said. I've got this. You and Trixie guard the door. Sorry, Hooch, but... Faith, you've got nothing to apologize to anyone, ever, Hooch said, going in the cabin, then coming back out. Empty. Really? Faith said. They'd found some like that. Shh, he said, leaning forward and whispering. That's all Trixie needs to know. Okay, Faith whispered, nodding. You know, your daughter's going a little batshit, right? Fontana said, checking the corpse for pupil response. It seemed like some of them weren't even decomposing, they were so dried up. But this was a corpse. I've noticed, Steve said. The question is if it's functional batshit and non-functional batshit. There's a difference, Fontana asked, as they checked the room across the hall. There weren't any surviving zombies, period. And the only human survivors were those who had been very, very careful using their supplies. And there weren't many of those. One of my grandparents had been a prisoner of war during the war, as it's referred to down under. Steve said, closing the door on the dead. To his dying day, he never drank more than one cup of water with breakfast, one with lunch, and one with supper. That was exactly all he drank. Doctors told him it was bad for him. He didn't listen. The next room contained a family that had zombied, or at least some of them had. One young male was still wearing scraps of clothes. All the corpses except one had been thoroughly gnawed. And he had about a million other quirks. Like reading so slow, it took him a year to finish a book. He'd read one word, savor it like the water, then read another. He developed what looked like batshit habits that kept him alive and sane in the camps. This world isn't going to get any better soon. The question is, if Faith's response is a functional one, or if it's going to cause a real split personality. Because right now, it's the only armor her brain has against this horror. And face it, whereas Grandpa's bad shit was weird in the normal world, Faith's gonna have to grow up in this bat shit world. She's only 13, Fontana said, walking into the next room. That was the pattern. Fontana took outboard, Steve took inboard. Ever thought about, you know, pulling her back? We've got the Coasties now to help with clearance. The Coasties have other skills, Steve said. And when they say clearance, they mean rounding guys up, searching for drugs, and maybe getting shot at. They don't mean blowing their way through zombies. They're still adults with some weapons training. Got a live one, not 13-year-old girls. On the face of it, you're right, Steve said. I should pull her back. You want to tell her? Medical team to cabin 2974. No, Fontana said giving the woman some water. Hey, you're gonna make it, okay? Just hang on. We've got medical teams on the way. Thank you, the woman whispered. Just sip the water. So, about Faith, Fontana said. The zombies don't bother her much. This shit is killing her. I know, Steve said. But the damn stretcher teams will barely come up into the dark areas and they won't go anywhere we haven't cleared for zombies. Even when all the zombies are dead, 
Find somebody who'll do this besides you, Hooch, me, and Faith. And I'll send Faith zombie hunting. Get the coasties, Fontana repeated. This is their kind of shit. I will, Steve said. When they get here. Some. Some are going to have to help with just keeping these poor bastards alive. We'll go back to heavy clearance, but for now, we're all we've got. And we can't do this all day and night, 24-7, Fontana pointed out. Steve reached up and changed the frequency on his radio. Dallas, you got me? Steve asked, walking into the exterior cabin. There was a body on the bed. He pointed. Gone, Fontana said. No pupil response. Dallas here. Can you retrans to Squadron Ops? Over. Roger. Squadron Ops. Jesus. Wolf. Yeah, Steve said. Isham, we're going to call this at 12 hours from when we went over the side. Whenever that is. The clearance teams, that is. If the Coasties are on site by then, I'd like them to manage the recovery work. But nobody works on it for more than 12 hours at a time. The clearance team is going to need some bunks on the Alpha or the Grace. And somebody who has a clue about gear to get this shit cleaned up. All that we're going to be able to do for the next, God knows how long, is clear, eat, sleep, and clear. Can you manage that? I've got it under control, Wolf, Isham replied. I'll get that set up. All the zombies are dead in the passenger cabin areas, Steve said. We're getting about one survivor per ten cabins. As soon as some of the coasties get on site, have them replace Faith and Hooch. Then us. Faith and Hooch go down for longer than we do. We'll both start again tomorrow at the same time, but get them replaced as soon as possible. We're going to be clearing this floating den of horrors for a long time. We need to think about how we're going to sustain this. Roger, Isham replied. Got all that. Thanks, Steve said. Wolf out. He changed the radio back over to the medical channel, then shrugged. Best I can do, Steve said. Chapter 31 Any decisions you need me to make? Steve asked, as he stepped off onto the flush deck of the Alpha. The waves were chopping up and the deck was awash, but he didn't really care. It would clean some of the crap off his boots. None, Isham said shaking his head. It's not a power grab. Everything that can be got under control is under control. Just trust me on that and get some rest. I want to drink myself to sleep, Steve said. Hang on, Isham said. Hang on to that grab rail and just stand there. We're going to wash you down out here. Makes sense, Steve said. He was covered in wet weather gear from top to bottom. The guns are going to need to be cleaned off in fresh water. Dried really well, then lubed up really well, Isham said, backing up the stairs. Just let them wash you down. Steve, Stacy said, hugging him. Oh, God. It's bad, Steve said, nodding. I'm really regretting bringing Faith on board. She's having a lot of problems with the... She stopped and grimaced. She likes the zombie hunting. I'm going to switch her to that as purely as possible. Steve said, nodding. I mean, there are horrors to that, but this has been... different. The cabin was excellent. Steve wasn't sure how Isham had procured the materials to return it to, if not its former glory, 
then back to very livable. But it was nice, and the meal that had been waiting for him after his long, hot shower looked really, really good. He wasn't sure that he could eat it, though. You have to eat, Stacy said. Reading my mind? Steve asked, smiling faintly. Always, Stacy said. Talk to me about something, Steve said, taking a forkful of the dish. He wasn't sure what it was, but it was excellent. When did Chris go back to being a cook? That's sorry, Stacy said, smiling. The one that was on here? Steve asked, then winced. The horrors of the voyage had nearly blotted out how bad the Alpha had been when they boarded. She's a really good cook, Stacy said, and Mike is overseeing the maintenance on our weapons and gear. I made sure they were all clear. He knew how to clear them, but I checked first. He's going to fine-tooth them. How's Isham doing? Steve asked. This is the sort of thing I need to talk about. Doing fine, Stacy said. He found one of the SSLs who's a premier scrounger, who turned up, among other things, boxes of Cuban cigars. Isham's up in Mickerberg's old office, smoking big black cigars and running things like he's General Patton. It's funny to watch in a way. I think until this came up, he really wasn't... in the game. But now he is, and he's doing a good job at it. Keep an eye on him, Steve said. I am, Stacy said, shrugging. But when we had a moment alone, he brought it up, and he pointed out that you're the one with the subs backing you. That headquarters gave you the authority, not him. He said, broken down and busted or not, I'm not going to try to buck the United States government. It's still got nuclear weapons. Now that sounds like it might be honesty, Steve said. Okay, wow, Faith said, shoveling down the breakfast. This is really good. Do I want to know what it is? Eggs, Sorry said, laying the plates out for the clearance team with more eggs. There were the scrambled eggs, which were awesome, a really good canned fruit salad, and fried potatoes. There was even fresh baked English muffins with butter. It's got a bit of a fishy taste, but a good one, Fontana said. What's the meat? It tastes like lobster? Scrambled eggs with lobster, Sorry said, and some secret ingredients. I'm gonna let you keep the secrets, Steve said looking out the window of the dinette. The small compartment, relatively small, it being the Alpha, had a good view of the growing flotilla of boats working on the voyage. He could even see the Campbell drifting in the distance. The Alpha and Grace had rendezvoused with it overnight and transferred clearance materials as well as medical supplies. Fortunately, it had lots of both. The cutter had seemed like a big ship when they first cleared it, now they had a new appreciation for Big, but for its relatively small size, it was absolutely packed with disaster material, which made sense given its jobs. Today is pure clearance, Steve said. Oh, thank God, Faith said. Wait, zombie killing clearance or checking cabins clearance? Zombie killing clearance, Steve said. We're going to sweep all the remaining untouched areas on the port side cabin zone then work our way across the ship and sweep the starboard side. If we run into survivors during that, unlikely, we'll call for extraction or extract them ourselves. The Coast Guard personnel are going to manage the extraction in cleared areas and provide security. 
that's mostly for the people doing actual removal. I can handle that, Faith said. Sorry, but I'm just... Nothing at all to be sorry about, Faith, Fontana said. This is getting to me, and I thought I'd seen pretty much every horror possible in Iraq and Afghanistan. The fact that you're not completely round the bend is pretty remarkable. I know the Trixie thing is freaking people out, Faith said, shrugging. But... It's a way for you to compartmentalize, Steve said, nodding. People who do this sort of thing have to do that. Everyone does. You just happen to have an outward expression. The question, since you raise it, is are you going to be okay continuing? I'm fine if it's killing zombies, Faith said, shrugging. And I can handle the usual sort of stuff. But Hooch had to take over checking the cabins. I... I can't do that right now. Even finding live ones. Half the time I was like, what's the point? We've lost some, Steve said. He'd had a quick briefing that morning before breakfast. And according to the doctors at the CDC, we'll probably lose some more over the next week. But most of them are making it. We're saving people. But for today, we'll just blow some zombies away. That'll help, Faith said, grinning. Weaponry, Steve said. There are some large areas we'll be clearing. Despite my fear of bouncers, I think we need at least one rifle. There are sure to be more security zombies, and we need to start conserving our shotgun rounds to the extent it's possible. Sergeant Fontana, you'll carry that. Roger, sir, Fontana said. Any word on the ammo from the Campbell? We got a resupply of 200 rounds of shotgun, Steve said, grimacing. That was all that was in the ready locker, or found scattered on board. There's a magazine, but it's apparently a vault, and nobody can find the keys. And since it's a magazine, you can't exactly cut it open with a blowtorch, Fontana said. There's a team looking for the keys at the moment, Steve said. According to what I got, there should be 2,000 more rounds of 12-gauge in there. Another reason to use the rifles whenever possible. We have, also, a limited amount of 762 but we're currently better on that than on shotgun. So when it's possible, Sergeant Fontana will take the shot. Please make sure that all rounds go into the target. I will, Fontana said. But you get bouncers from shotgun as well. They tend to be caught in the body armor, Steve said, and the spots not covered by armor that are likely to kill us are small. With the exception of the face, of course, which is why, in addition to all the other stuff we're carrying, we're going to be adding ballistic face shields. The Campbell had six on board. They've already been mounted to the helmets. Kuzma has set up a freshwater decontamination shower on the lifeboat deck, forward. If we get as bloodied up as we did yesterday, Faith, we'll run through that. There's also a forward support post set up with food, water, and ammo, and we can drop back to it and take a break. One thing we're going to have to look for is a forward point that we can set up as a permanent secure point on the voyage. Not too big, not too small, some exterior light, and most of all, secure. That's all I've got for now. Let's eat. Just sip, the lady said, putting a straw to his lips. It's chicken broth. Rusty still could barely do that. He was feeling better. Not human, but all the water they'd been pumping through him was helping. He still could barely lift his arms. Thank you, he said, 
leaning back on the pillows when the small cup of broth was down. He was so far gone, he actually felt full. Are you a nurse? And where? Okay. First of all, you're on a support ship called the Grace Tan, the lady said. I'm Amanda. No, I'm not a nurse. We've only got one nurse survivor, and she's organizing this. I'm a survivor like you. I was on a lifeboat. I was on the voyage, too. The way things worked out, I'm glad I made it to the lifeboat. But a lot of those? She shook her head. So, is it the Navy, or? Rusty asked. It's a long story, Amanda said, smiling. If you feel you're up to some reading, they've made a little pamphlet. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a giant pile of SAT score results from the 1980s to Burn for Warmth, and the actual carrot on the actual stick Paul Bunyan used to encourage Babe to plow the Grand Canyon. Plus our deep gratitude for the great discussion to Eric Flint, David Brin, Charles E. Gannon, Robert Waters, Walter Hunt, Virginia DeMars, David Carrico, Bjorn Hassler, Walt Boys, and Joy Ward, authors of a bundle of great fiction in the Ring of Fire 4 short story collection. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.